I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the letter of James, chapter 1, as we resume our study of this book. These verses are unfortunately abused by many in our modern day. And that's a shame because this is the living word of God and he has given it to us for our edification and for our faith, love, and obedience. So let's see what the Lord has for us in today's passage. James chapter 1, 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for James having by your spirit written this book. And we ask that even now we would believe, love, and apply this word especially when we're in the thick of it, especially when it's hard. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, I want to begin by reminding you, well, actually, who, who here has sat through one iteration or another of our Discovering Spring Cypress class? One iteration or another. Okay, most people. Okay. In that class, one of the things we discuss is theological methodology. How do we do theology? How do we read the Bible and then apply it to develop a system of understanding God's word? This passage calls for us to bear in mind the principle that we stated in the class. Namely, we do theology here by keeping the big picture in mind. One of the earmarks of cults, one of the earmarks of eccentric, errant teachers is to take one passage and treat it as if it is the only passage and absolutize the contents so that you put it ultimately and functionally at odds with the rest of Scripture. Why do I bring that up? 
Because in our day, our denomination even is presently in the midst of an argument, a battle, that one side is guilty of doing exactly that. This passage, I grew up and I was basically um, taught that this passage's primary teaching point is that desire precedes sin. And that this passage presents a mechanical guide to how sin and temptation and desires work. And so there's a side that takes this passage and treats it as if it is the only passage that speaks of temptation, desires, and sins and isolates out this passage and says, you are not culpable for your desires because look here, your desires are one thing, sins are another thing. You can't help your desires. They are what they are. They may be broken, but they're not sinful. They just are. And it is only if you choose to act on them that you incur guilt, that you are engaging in something that is wrong. Now, that reading may, may be understandable if you're an uneducated person who doesn't understand the full scope of Scripture. If you just casually open your Bible and you look at James 1.14, you may be tempted to say, Wow, it, it does say that my desires are something and desires have to, have to conceive, whatever that means, and then there's this sin. So, yeah, there's a difference. But I tell you, I say to you, that for a pastor, a theologian, a Bible teacher to maintain that is negligent and dishonest and wrong. Indeed, how sin works, how sin operates is a very broad, complex subject. Sin is so much more insidious than simply the things we do. The doctrine of total depravity, which is developed by a comprehensive reading and understanding and synthesis of God's word, it, it, it posits that at a fundamental level, you, you could almost say to, 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 to biologize it, you may as well say, it's like saying sin is now a part of our DNA. It's wired into our being at such a fundamental level that it influences everything. Indeed, so pervasive is sin that the words, the word plays for sin in the, or for temptation and, and, uh, and desire and covetousness and all that stuff, it's, it's usually the same word. Like here in verse 14, when it says your desires, the Greek word epithumeia, it's, it's the word in 
Matthew 5, when Jesus says, if anyone looks at a woman with, if anyone looks at a woman with, epithumeia, he's already committed adultery. It's the word that in Colossians 3, 5, when we're told to put away evil desire, epithumeia. It's the word in 2 Peter 1, 4 that we are told we have escaped from our sinful desires. That's epithumeia. Again, epithumeia, epithumeia, epithumeia. It keeps showing up. And so the desires themselves are seen to be sinful. But it gets even further than that. Consider, if you will, Romans 7, 8, that that great chapter in which Paul expresses his frustration at how there's this law at work that he can't stop sinning. Which leads to his, his, his cry at the end, who will save us from this body of death? Okay, so in Romans 7, 8, he's talked about the law and how the law creates the opportunity you know for you for you to commit a crime or whatever it's not just desire and motive you have to have opportunity and the law brothers and sisters gives you the opportunity because now you've been told no to something and if there's one thing that being a a a father has taught me is that i didn't have to be a father who am i kidding if there's one thing that life has taught me is that you tell me no and instantly i'm going to try to figure out a way to to do it that's what paul is saying Okay, so in Romans 7, he's talking about the law and how it creates opportunity. And here's what he says in Romans 7, 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of what? Epithemia. Here, in Romans 7, 8, Sin is almost like this living force that's within him that precedes the desires, the epithumeia. Whereas in James, epithumeia is what gives birth to sin. Is there a conflict or a contradiction? No. This is why we need the Bible's whole teaching on sin. Because Paul's making a point in Romans 7, and James is making a point in James 1. But taken together, we see that yes, oh yes indeed, it is quite possible that our desires themselves are sinful. How can, here's a quick litmus test, brothers and sisters. We, we can't even get into the nuances of, of desires that are well-intentioned, but stuff just turns awry because we don't know. Okay, let's not even get that deep. Here's a quick litmus test. If you desire something that God's word says no to, guess what? That's a sinful desire. A desire for a sinful thing is Sinful. That seems pretty simple. 
Is that too simple? I don't know. All right. So that's the great caveat. Don't let people tell you that their desires are not sinful. They're just, they just are. And it's only action that's sinful. Okay. So what then is this passage teaching us? If this passage is not a mechanical, absolutized diagram of how sin and temptation works, then what is this passage? Well, remember, James is always, first and foremost, very practical. He's not a theorist like Paul. So when James is speaking of sin right here, he is not talking about sin as an absolute construct or sin. He is referring to those specific acts, the things that you can see and do and identify, your behavior. Okay, And his point is pretty simple, but... But, but really, what this whole section is, is he's summing up this opening chapter's argument that your trials are a tool in the hands of God to sanctify you. He's summing it up, and right here, he wants us to remember that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, we can have hope and confidence because of who God is. He knows that the people he's writing to are having a, a tough time of it. They are experiencing trials. He knows that trials produce discomfort. He knows that trials produce stress. And in stress people sometimes throw up their hands. And he doesn't want you to do that. And he knows that the key to surviving a bad situation is oftentimes having the right perspective, having the right lens through which you're looking at the world. For most of my life, I chose, I think I was deceived, but I was told that if you wore sunglasses, it would make your, the, your eye muscles, the muscles in your eye, not, it would weaken them. And so I was determined to be strong. So for most of my life, I never wore sunglasses. And that, that worked, I guess, until, until my 30s, and then I started needing sunglasses because glare was just a little too much. But wearing sunglasses, and then you can wear different types of sunglasses that highlight different colors on the spectrum making things easier to see or notice, okay? Your lens through which you're looking at the world can make a huge difference. And one thing the Bible calls us to is a heavenly mindedness, to keep our thoughts and our minds and our affections fixed on that which is true, right, good, and beautiful, that which is eternal. And let that be the grid that shapes how we interact in the world. And we have to own it so much. You need to drill it, drill through it, repeat it, make it muscle memory so that when the stress and trial of difficulty comes, you're not scrambling and fumbling. And so in the first section, James wants us to consider that our experience of trial is not futile or meaningless. Your experience of trial is not futile or meaningless. 
It's not just making some great theological point. Look at verse 12. Those who remain steadfast are called by God, what? Blessed. Have you thought of yourself that way? You go through trial. You go through hardship. Have you thought of yourself as blessed? Or do you tend to look pessimistically at the situation around you and think that your trials are evidence that you're being disciplined, that you've been a disappointment, that you are perhaps getting cast out? In other words, do you look at your trials and struggles and think it's evidence of God's curse? When in fact, if you're his, you're blessed. Your experience of trial does not detract from, does not take away from, does not diminish all that Jesus has done for you and purchased for you. You are blessed. And then he says that they will, they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Notice how the character of God is put on display right here for you to understand that your struggles are not futile or meaningless. There is a prize. You will get a reward. That alone means there's an actual goal at the end of this. You will get a prize. The certainty of it. You will. Not you might. You will. How do we know? Because God has promised. A promise is only as good as the person making it. So what are we to understand when we realize that God's promise has been given regarding the prize for steadfastness? He's a promise-keeping God. His word is sure. His word is certain. Now the struggles and trials you go through, they're going to constantly be in flux. Okay, you may think you have the battle won and then suddenly reinforcements come in and it's all harder than it was before. Or you may think that all hope is lost and all of a sudden the line breaks and you're through. But regardless, persevere because God is a promise-keeping God. And he equates your faithfulness with love for him. That's, that's what this verse does, verse 12. The crown of life promised to those who love him being given to those who are steadfast, that means your steadfastness is love for God. And we are called to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because he first loved us. He is a God who keeps his word. So you will have a reward at the end. Your trials are not an indicator of curse, but your steadfastness is an indicator of your blessedness because you do not fight the battles alone. You have been given a comforter, 
We just read Romans 8 last night, my family, and devotions, and I was struck how Hebrews tells us that, Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus intercedes for us from the very right hand of the Father. Romans 8, though, tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes. That's the same word being used. Intercedes for us from where? From within us. You have an intercessor before God and in your heart. That's awesome. So your trials can be endured. They are not futile. They are not meaningless. But then, as we face trial, we must, secondly, own our own decisions, specifically our decisions to sin. When he says at the beginning of verse 13, let no one say when tempted, why does he suddenly talk about temptation here? He's talking about trials. You and I both know, when we're going through a hard time, a trial, you're going to suddenly face temptation to make a choice that will end the trial, perhaps prematurely. So, so yes, he's talking about decisions that could be applied to all of life, but specifically why it's here is people don't want to suffer. People don't want hardship. And that creates an opportunity then for my desire to avoid that to create within me the temptation to do something Christ-dishonoring that will bring alleviation to the trouble I'm in. So it is a natural fit for him to talk about it right there. He's not limiting it to those kinds of, of temptations, but that's why it's a fit. Trials create opportunities for temptations. And we have to own it because we are tempted when we are tempted to say, God is the one doing this. He's sovereign. We want to blame the devil half the time and we'll blame God. He, you know, he created the conditions. He created the, it's God is tempting me here. No, is what he says. Absolutely not. Why? Because of, again, who God is. For the second time, he points out and brings to mind God's character. Do you see how he's working on that heaven mindset, that eternal mindset that informs and shapes how we interact with our circumstances? So for the second time now, he's pointed out who God is. He's holy. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He's not talking about the hypostatic union and the incarnate. He's not talking about that. God cannot be tempted with evil. He's holy. Because he cannot be tempted with evil, sin has no place in his presence, nor does he use temptation then as a tool. What is temptation? Temptation is an incitement to get someone to do what they should not do. And God never, ever is on the side of wanting you, beloved child of his, to fail. Tests are an opportunity to shine. Tests are an opportunity to prove 
and for you to grow in your appreciation and conviction that, oh, yes, I am his, and he's doing a wonderful work in me, hallelujah, though it's difficult. But a temptation is always, always, always designed to get you to fail. Which is why verse 15 is the juxtaposition to verse 12. Steadfastness in trial is a matter of life. You get the crown of life. Following the way of sin when it's had its full course is what? Death. You may as well summarize the two with Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Let no one say that God is tempting us. He doesn't tempt you. You are tempted ultimately by what? By yourself. Your epithumeia. Look at what verse 14 tells us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own epithumeia. Notice what your desire does. Lures and entices. Does that sound like the actions of a harmless, benevolent, or, 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 or morally neutral thing? Luring? Enticing? Sounds like a predator. Sounds like someone trying to get and capture prey. No. Your desires are so tainted by sin. My desires are so tainted by sin that oftentimes I have a hard time knowing which one of them is right or wrong. Sometimes I can tell, but not always. But when I sense in me a, the, that, that temptation to do that which I know I shouldn't, I can be assured that that is my own desire within me at work, seeking to get me to commit then to a course of sin, an action of sin. And when it says that sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death, what you should understand is it's not just talking about the terminus, that it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, dead. Sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth. So it issues forth a whole course of events and things and circumstances that culminate in death. This is why we have not just death at the end, but all along the way we have our estrangements, our difficulties in relationships, our struggles, our fighting, our, our, our greed, our slander. The whole course is set on fire and it terminates in death. This is the way of sin. And we have to own it. Because it comes from within us. But God, praise be his name, has not left us alone. Because even in the midst of trials, finally, God is the giver of every good gift. He's good and kind. There's no darkness, duplicity, or dishonesty in him. He is unchanging. He never wavers. He never vacillates. 
So his commitment to you in Christ is always yes and amen. And it can be tough to see that even the test is a, is a gift of his, an opportunity to shine. And so what he does is he reminds us the troubles that you're going through, this, this trial, it is issued forth from the fact that you're one of his. And let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Who gave us birth by his spirit? He did. Of his own will, it says. Of his own will, he brought us forth. So in other words, our gracious, good God has given you life. Has given you his spirit. And every good and perfect gift along the way comes from him. As a sign, I'm on your side. We are going through this. And by my spirit, I will get you to the finish line. Persevere. Hold on. Even this trial comes to you through my good and kind hand. So brothers and sisters, life is hard. Trials are real. They can be scary. But you don't go through them alone. God is with you. He is for you. And rightly understanding his character and involvement really will help give you the paradigm to interact wisely and well in your circumstances. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your character revealed to us. We thank you for how you sustain us in our times of trouble. Lord, grant that we would have the honesty to acknowledge that we're, we're the authors of our own sin and, and we're guilty because of it. But thank you that you forgive us because of Jesus. Thank you that you are willing to restore us to fellowship, to never cast us away. Thank you. Grant that we would follow you faithfully all the days of our life. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.